happy Mother's Day to the moms who are in the room. And so we want to give a special round of applause for you for being a mom all day, every day. Yeah, happy Mother's Day. Uh, one of the greatest gifts of life is to actually be able to, to parent a, a child, even on the hardest days, right? When, when there are ups and downs, like it's still a blessing to be able to uh, parent uh, children. They're one of the greatest gifts, but as one of the greatest gifts, that means that you'll be able to experience some of the greatest highs in your life that are associated with your children. But at the same time, on the other side of that coin, some of the, just as you have some of the greatest joys attached to your children, that means that you also have some of the greatest hurts and struggles and maybe even sometimes disappointments that come along uh, with your uh, children as well. And so I, I was sitting down with the Lord this week just kind of thinking through, like we don't normally do like a Mother's Day specific talk, right? Mother's Day kind of sometimes fits in with a series that we're doing. And I thought, well, we're not in the middle of a series right now, so let's just talk specifically to the moms or, or, or the, to the idea of parenting. And when I was sitting down with the Lord this week, sitting at my desk, um, the, the words of Paul popped into my head from Romans chapter 8. And Paul says, here, go ahead and throw that up, guys. Uh, he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I sat there and I thought, well, does that apply to parenting? Does that apply to being a mom? Do all things really work out for those who love the Lord? It, because, like, I, I live in my house, okay? I, I live with my kids, and I see my wife try to parent my kids, and I see how they just kind of go off the fun, to the funny farm every once in a while. And, and I'm kind of like, okay, Lord, is this really going to work out for good? I mean, because I love you, but is this really going to work out for good? And, and I think maybe I'm probably not the only one in that category because the struggle of parenting is real. The struggle of parenting is real. And the struggle even to be a mom who I think is often tasked with a large part of the responsibility to bring up our kids, man, that struggle is real too. And so what we're going to do this morning is, is I want to look at a story that highlights the joys and the struggles of being a mom who's able to look at the whole picture and say, yes, although there's a struggle sometimes and there are ups and downs along the way, that, there, that God is going to work this out. Yes, somehow God does have a plan in us for those, for, for those who love him. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them up to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, and we're going to be in chapter 1. And let me give you a little bit of background here. In Scripture, uh, God, when he's, um, he's often, he'll often use a story of somebody's birth to mark a, a shift in his plan for his people. When he's getting ready to move away from something into something new. So when you have the, the birth of Moses, you have a big narrative around him because Moses was getting ready to shift people out of slavery. John is born, and then when John's born, he shifts people towards the Messiah. Something's changing. When Jesus is born, there's a, lot about, there's a lot of narrative and a lot of words that come along with the preparation for his birth. When he is born, there is a shift that moves away from the Old Testament law, and that moves in towards grace and into salvation, which he pays for, nothing that we can earn for ourselves. So it's not an earning thing, it becomes a grace thing. So there's a shift in how he works with his people there. And so key birth stories set the stage for God doing something new. God doing something new in Israel. God doing something new throughout history. And so where we pick up our story this morning, Israel is getting ready to finish up something uh, called the period of the judges, okay? The, the people, they've been doing what's right in their own eyes for so long. They've been looking around and saying, this is how we're supposed to live. They've been kind of pushing against God's law. 
And God is getting ready now to move away from the judges and shift into a period that we know as the monarchy, right? It's a new period in history. And so the Old Testament kings um, are getting ready to show up onto the scene, not only in world history, but here in Israel's history. And so this birth story of, of, uh, that we're going to read today, it kind of kicks off this new era in Israel's history. And so if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to read uh, quite a bit of section here in uh, chapter 1. So read with me, or read along with me. Bear with me with the names too, all right? There was a certain man of Ramathame, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and wouldn't eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why, don't you, or why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice wasn't heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, we have um, heard your word. Um, we have spoken your word. And I pray, Lord, now that by your spirit you would just begin to apply your word uh, to our lives. And whatever season of life we're in, whatever vocation we're in, wherever we're at in parenting, Wherever we are, Lord, would you apply that truth to us? We're ready to hear from you. And so my mouth is available. Lord, I'm available. And so would you just speak to me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're writing things down or if you have a device, I want you to go ahead and plug this in. I want you to write down, the struggle is real. Okay? The struggle is real because uh, from verse 1 to verse 9, it kind of capitulates that idea of the struggle that Hannah is in here. So you start off, you have this guy, Elkanah. He lives in a place called the hill country of Ephraim. And every year, he makes about a 50-mile journey to a place called Shiloh. And he goes to Shiloh so that he can do two things, so that he can worship and so that he can sacrifice to the Lord. 
And this is, a, this is a great thing, okay? Shiloh at the time is a place where the tabernacle was built. This is a place where God chose to dwell. His presence was among his people in Shiloh at the time. And so all kinds of people from around the place would come to Shiloh to worship God here. And Elkanah, he's one of these guys who has a heart bent on worshiping. So he shows up in Shiloh. And so what scripture is trying to do here is saying that from the time when, from, from time when the majority of Israel was out doing everything that they wanted to do, when they were doing whatever was right in their own eyes, during this time, there was a man named Elkanah who was, who was there doing what was right. He was there being faithful to the Lord. And so we go on and we read a little more about Elkanah, and we, and we read that he's got two wives. We're like, whoa, hold on, hold on. He's got two wives? Like you just said, that he's, he's like walking with the Lord. He's there to worship. He's there to sacrifice. So why on earth would he have two wives? Is it okay to be rolling up to church with a gal on each side of your arm? And we're like, well, I don't think that's right. I don't, I don't think that, that may work in some other states, but that's not going to work here in Nebraska, okay? That's not, that's not a good thing. And so when we read that, we're like, well, that's a little bit strange. And it's strange because you know why? Because it's strange. I mean, that, that, that's why it's strange. And, and we read it and it's weird. And as weird as it is, though, it was common during uh, the time. Uh, during the time, it was uh, customary, or maybe not so much customary, if a guy um, got married to a gal and they went off and they went, went and did married people stuff, if she wasn't able to have kids or they weren't able to have kids together, what would happen was if this guy had the money to swing another wife and go get another bride and be able to care for her, that he could bring her into his fold. That he could begin to care for that way so he could take another wife so that he could perpetuate his name and his bloodline. Okay? So we're not saying that's right. That's not okay. So if you hear me saying that's okay, like don't go out and go find another bride. Okay? If things aren't going well, don't come in with, with two gals. That's not okay. What we're saying is at the time, this was common. It was common practice. And so what Elkanah does is he marries this gal named Hannah who is no doubt for all of her life, she's a young Jewish gal, right? She's, she's looked forward to the day that she was going to have a husband. She's looked forward to the day that she's going to be able to bear children. She looks forward to the day that she'll be able to help a husband continue his bloodline. That, that, that maybe she can have a child and, and that child might have her mannerisms, like might be able to think like her, talk like her, might be able to have the same sense of humor maybe that she has, to raise kids that, that she can love that she could love and that she can care for. Maybe even be able to teach and bring them up. But verse 2 says that there's a problem. Hannah didn't have any children. Hannah was barren. And so Elkanah, he goes out and he marries uh, another gal and brings another gal into the picture so that he might be able to continue his name and continue his, his bloodline. And guys, this was a big deal. Because if you didn't have children during the time, there was a social stigma that gets attached to that. There's shame that gets attached with it. Because people thought that, well, maybe you're being judged by God or you're being cursed by God. Because there was, uh, there was a section of text in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 where God was blessing and cursing. That if you follow, there's blessing. If you are disobedient, then there's cursing. So if you weren't able to have children and you were barren, the, the collective society believed that you were under God's judgment and you were under his curse. And, and so this was not a good social stigma for her. And so people would see somebody who was barren and think, oh, oh, you're barren? Well, that means that you've got some kind of gross sin in your life that you haven't worked out with God, and now you're under his judgment. And so you can imagine the personal feelings of disappointment that, that Hannah was feeling just in the fact that she wasn't able to have kids. And then you throw on top of that the social stigma that comes along with that. 
And so not only does Hannah here, it, not only does she experience this personal disappointment, but she's also being made to feel like less of a person. Her identity is being attacked in this because she wasn't able to have kids. And so from the day that Peninnah walked into the house and she was able to have kids, there was this immediate war of value. Oh, you can't give him what he wants? I'll be able to give him what he wants. You can't give him what you think he wants? He wants children more than anything? I'll be able to help him continue on his blood. And so Peninnah begins to attack Hannah. And you can imagine how Hannah would feel in, in those moments, right? She would begin to kind of recruit. If you can't give him kids, and then the identity begins to come along with that. Oh, if, if I can't do that for him, I mean, what do I have to offer? What do I have to bring to the table? And, and so this war of value begins to happen. Scripture actually says in verse 6 that, that, that Hannah's rival or adversary is Peninnah. Calls her a rival or an adversary. That she's there, she's provoking her, irritating her. And she was just downright being nasty to Hannah. All because what Scripture said is that God closed her womb. Hannah had done nothing wrong. Scripture says God closed her womb. She had nothing to do with this. The struggle that she was going through at the time, this was somehow part of God's plan. And if God closed her womb, there's nothing that she could do about it. There's nothing that anybody else could do about it. If he closed it, only he could actually open the womb back up. And so Peninnah just begins to attack year after year after year. And Hannah has to put up with this, her nonsense, and the rivalry, and the adversary that she's becoming. And I know for some of us, when, when we hear this or read this section, this is a little bit too close to our hearts, um, because we don't have to imagine what Hannah is experiencing, because maybe you've walked through something like that. But for the rest of us, what I want to do is I want us to try to imagine what Hannah might be going through, okay? Everything in society at the time, it was built around having kids, so the conversations were all geared around having kids. The, the kids schooling and what they're learning, the kids' behavior and what's going on inside and outside of the house, the funny stories of things that they're doing and when they fell over and, and when they knocked over the Jews, like all that, like everything's around these conversations. And so the women that were in Hannah's age group, right, they're out there having kids. She can't relate with those conversations anymore. They're talking about things. And, and this isn't just in Hannah's day. This happens now in our time frame too as well, right? That, that, that when, and it's not just in parenting. It happens in social circles. It happens in life group. It happens in society. When we don't feel like we can add anything to the conversation or when we've been left out of a conversation, there's a lot that gets tied up in who we are and how we function emotionally, physically, all that kind of stuff. And so Hannah is working through this. And not only is she not able to feed into these conversations, there is somebody who's on the other side who is just going to work on the pain that she's emotionally uh, feeling and intentionally just being ruthless to her and nagging her about the idea that she can't give her husband what that girl thinks that that's the only thing that he wants. You know, we've got a, a few friends in our, our family that have experienced uh, barrenness or childlessness, and they wanted nothing more than to, than to have children. And so uh, we've walked alongside of them in this great anguish of pain that they've been walking through. And then you throw on top of that somebody who was just intentionally being nasty. This had to have been so unbearable for Hannah in this, in this space. We could say, I think, that the struggle for Hannah was real in this moment. Her struggle was definitely real. Now, I think just to make this, uh, this context uh, more, uh, a little bit more applicable or, or make it a little more broad for us, 
the, the social stigma that she was experiencing, the pain that sometimes that gets associated with motherhood, it's not just located in, in barrenness, right? Or it's not just isolated there. It comes along in the, the parent-child relationship that if somehow there, there's been a, a break in the relationship, you can feel that same tension that Hannah's feeling here. Or if maybe if there's been a loss of a child somewhere along the line, you can feel the tension that, uh, that would be going on for her as well. If you've had a child that's just kind of gone rogue or what we would call maybe like a prodigal child to just kind of run off the railroad tracks, you say, man, I've done everything that I can for that child. I've done everything. I've loved and I've poured in and I've shared my faith. I've told them about Jesus. I've done everything that is within my realm. And then they just go off it there. There is a deep pain that gets associated with that. And all that can get wrapped up in this heart cry, I think, that Hannah is experiencing in this moment. And there are real-life implications that come along. There's emotional struggle, and there's physical struggle that happens as well. Because Hannah here, she's emotionally distraught. Man, she is weeping on top of weeping on top of weeping. And not only is it emotional, but it, there's, a, there's a physical aspect to this too. It says that she wouldn't eat or that she couldn't even eat. And I was looking into this uh, this week, and I thought, man, is it just that she couldn't eat? Or, or sometimes people are so distraught that we can begin to choose not to eat, that then it becomes another issue as well. And I looked at the context, I looked at the language, and the language doesn't keep us from coming to that conclusion. She is emotionally and physically distraught in, in this moment. And I think when we're in the midst of a struggle, something like this, or whatever our struggle is, guys, like this isn't just for, for women or, or moms, or um, this is vocational, this is in parenting, this is in uh, relationships. But I, I think when we're in the midst of some type of struggle, it's hard for us to believe that there are people around us who actually love us and that, there are, and that there is a God in heaven who actually loves us because we feel the deep struggle so intensely that we can't see the people around us who are trying to pour into us and love us um, the way that God tells us to love them. And, and I think what's unique about this particular passage is that Elkanah, right, he is always trying to remind Hannah, hey, I love you. I, I, I know that you're not able to give me children and to be able to and, and carry on my bloodline, but I love you in spite of, of all that. I do. I love you. And, and this guy, man, he tries so many times to let her know that, that, that he does love her. And I don't know if, if everything that he tries is, is like she receives it as, as being loved, but he tries uh, several, different kind, uh, several different ways because he's a guy, right? That's what guys do. If there's a problem... We try to fix it. Now, he knows that he, like, God has closed her womb. And if it's going to be open, God is the one who has to open it. Like, but he can't fix that. But he's emotionally checked in enough that there is something going on here. And so he tries. Um, and a couple different ways that he tries to show her that he loves and he can see the struggle that Peninnah is putting in her life. And just the deep emotional struggle that she's going through as well is that uh, during the, the sacrifice, uh, the time of worship, they can, have, they can have parts of the food. And so scripture says that, um, that he loved her so much that he gave her a double portion. Now, here's what that means, is that Peninnah, she's got kids, and so she's allotted a certain amount of that food because of how many kids she had. Hannah is not allotted the same amount because she doesn't have kids. But scripture says that he loved her so much that he gave her a double portion. He gave her what she did not merit in that moment. This to show her to say, hey, I love you. Then it goes on. And guys, I want you to pay attention to this, okay? Because sometimes guys get this, this rap of that we're emotionally disconnected. And that's rightly given sometimes because we think maybe that's like a badge of honor. Like, oh, I don't, I don't talk about my emotions. 
I don't talk about that kind of stuff. But when we look at Elkanah here, like he is emotionally checked in what's going on. He sees what Hannah's going through. He sees the pain and he jumps in and albeit, I don't know if he does it the best, but he, again, he tries to let her know, hey, I see you, I understand, and I love you. Look at what happens in verse 8, right, right at the end of verse 7. He says, therefore Hannah wept and wouldn't eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Now, he's doing good. Right here, he, I mean, he is on it, okay? He's a man, I see you. And then if we could just leave this last line out, it would have been great. And he says, am I not more to you than 10 sons? Baby, you don't need kids. You got me. <laughs> he was doing good. And then he tried to fix it, something that he couldn't fix, and he went off the rail. But he's trying. Guys, listen, he's emotionally checked in here, okay? So let's not bust him up too hard. He sees what's going on. But sometimes the struggle, it's hard to see. It's hard to see past what you're going through and to realize that you're loved and the thing that you're walking through, that this actually might be part of God's plan, that this actually might be his plan at work. Because, again, I, I want to highlight, this is, God had sovereignly somehow closed her womb, and if it was going to open, it had to be from him. And, and it didn't mean that he would never open it and that it would always be closed. But in this moment of the struggle that she's walking through, this is her scenario. And so the struggle is real. But what we need to know is that the struggle doesn't always belong to us. That the struggle belongs to the Lord as well. It's not just hers to carry. And so it's his fight. It's his battle to win. And so he has a plan for the struggle that she's in. But can he really work all things together for those who love him? Even in something so sensitive as child raising or child rearing or bringing kids into the world. Can he work all things out in this realm? And so if you're writing things down, write this down too. This struggle belongs to the Lord. The struggle is real, but the struggle belongs to the Lord. Because verse 9 through 18, these next nine verses, this capitulates this idea of how the, the Lord reminds Hannah that he's in charge, that she can lay this stuff down at his feet. Okay? I think um, when we're raising kids, or really when we're doing anything, but specifically because we're in this parenting conversation here, I think when we're raising kids, we've got to remember that the like we might be in a struggle and there are highs and lows, there are ups and downs that comes along with that, joys and pains. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that this isn't just on us. When God has given us children or is in the process of working us through if we're going to have children or not, that he's in control of that fight, that he's in control of that uh, struggle. I'm going to shift gears here just a second. One of the consistent themes that you see all throughout um, this chapter is that Hannah, she's always with Elkanah. Every time he heads up to Shiloh, like she's right there by his side. Now here's the thing, she doesn't have to go. He's obligated to go, to, to, to be in obedience and to show his faithfulness to the Lord. He's obligated to go. She doesn't have, she could stay back at home and do whatever that she wants. But every time he goes to Shiloh, she is right there by his side to go and worship alongside of him. You know why I think she goes? Here's why. Shiloh is the place where God's presence dwells at time, right? So that means that this is the place of refuge. This is the place of peace for her. Actually, Shiloh means a place of refuge. It means a place of, of peace. And so this is where she and anybody else could go to lay down the struggle and the burden that they've been carrying for so long. 
This is where she could go and others could go to be reminded that they are loved, that there is a God in heaven who loves them, and that he has a plan for their life. Then not, not only does he have a plan for our individual lives, but he has a plan that is so much bigger that we are a part of as well. This was the place of refuge for her. And so year after year, when Peninnah is just being nonsensical to her and just being so ruthless to her, and she's being tormented by her own struggle and what Peninnah is dropping on her, she goes back to this place year after year to keep laying down the struggle. She runs to the place of peace. She runs to the place as fast as she can of refuge. Hey, you're going? Let me come along with you because I've got some stuff to lay down. You're going, to the, you're going to the tabernacle again? I've got to go get some peace in my life. And so she tags along with him. And, and this isn't just relegated to, to parenting, okay? I think this is applicable to all of life. I, I think it is like strategic for parenting right now. But in all things of life, like we keep running back to the place of refuge and peace. We keep being reminded, yes, the struggle is real. Yes, there are ups and downs in the things that we go through. But the struggle doesn't just belong to us. This belongs to the Lord. He will fight in this place for us. So watch what Hannah does here in, the, in, in verses 9 through 18. She has this interaction with this priest named Eli. And she goes over to the tabernacle. She goes over there to spend time in the presence of God. She is completely unaccompanied. Elkanah is not with her in this moment. She is by herself, her and the Lord. And she's weeping and just pouring her heart out to God. Now, if you've ever had just so much laying on your chest or laying on your back that you feel like, man, I've got to get this off of my chest, you know exactly what she was feeling in this moment because she had to get it out. And, and so she's there before the Lord, and she's weeping, she's crying, and she's praying. What Scripture says is a silent prayer. Her lips are moving, but there are no words that are coming out. Now, it's not uncommon in the Old Testament for, for a prayer just to break out, for spontaneous prayer. But prayer in the Old Testament is usually formulaic to some extent. To some, it's, it's out loud and it's formulaic. There are um, certain prayers that you pray. And so she would have known words to say and others would have known what was coming because it was spoken out. But this moment, she is just crushed in spirit and she is pouring everything out. And so her lips are moved. She's praying from her heart, but there's no audible words. And so Eli is standing over here in the, or he's sitting over here in the tabernacle. And he sees all of this going down. And he's like, man, what is wrong with this gal? Like, it, like, she is like so torn up in this moment and no words are coming out. He thinks she's drunk. And so he says, like, like she's coming to the tabernacle like this? She's coming in this condition? And so he goes after. He's like, how long are you going to walk around like a drunk woman? How long are you going to walk around like a wino out in this place? Like, put away the wine. Stop it. And she said, man, no, listen, Eli, I'm not drunk. I haven't been drinking. It's just my heart. My heart's broken. I'm just pouring this out. And I want you to notice the prayer that she prays in this moment. This is, again, this is a woman who's been coming to the tabernacle. This is a woman who's had a lifestyle of worship up to this point. The house of God there in Shiloh has been a place of refuge and peace for her. And she cries out, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She says, Lord, if you would see my struggle and meet me in my struggles, 
I promise that the child that I'm asking for right now, he won't just be for me. I'm going to give him to you. And however you want to use him, you can use him however you want. Don't miss what she's saying and what she's asking for here. She says, I'm praying for a child. But what I want more than anything is to raise a child who will grow up and make a difference in your kingdom. I want to give him to you to use. See, Hannah had no idea if God was going to answer her prayer the way that she wanted. It's almost like she's throwing this prayer out without any strings attached, which is expect, with, with no expectations. Yes, she wants a child, but it's not necessarily for her. I mean, there, there's a part of it, like, there's that mother's heart, but the next part of it, like, man, I just want to raise a kid who's going to grow up and make an impact in, in the kingdom. But she has no idea how God's going to answer this. And so there's so much that gets locked up into this prayer. The prayer that she's making, it, it's known as a, a, a Nazarite vow. It's, a, it's a, the same vow that Samson was under. It's why he had long hair. It's the same uh, vow that John the Baptist was under. And, and what it is, it's this lifelong commitment to serving God. That I'm handing him over to you and you can use him for life. Or that I'm giving myself to you and you can use me for life. And the whole idea of not shaving the head, that was just a sign that you were under a Nazarite vow. So everybody knew that you were devoted to God. And so she's making this promise. I think one of the greatest prayers that we can ever make for our kids, right? Whether we have kids right now or praying for kids, whether there are kids who are living in our house right now or there are kids who have already gone out the door, one of the greatest prayers that we can ever make for our children is I'm gonna pray that they would know God and not just know about him, but to know him, to love him, to have a relationship with him that changes and impacts their own life that would then go out and impact the rest of the world around them. And so to know God but to be used mightily in the kingdom of God. If you pray that for your kids and you have kids, or you start praying that before you ever have kids, God, let them know you and let them be used mightily in your kingdom, man, that's, that, that's a big prayer. That is one of the best prayers that you could ever make. And the prayer that Hannah is making here, this isn't some kind of fluke, right? This is an overflow of her life. This is an overflow of worship. And she says, if you give me this, then I'll give you that. There's, there's this conditional kind of a statement, an if-then clause here. If you give me, but it wasn't a bartering chip. You know, sometimes like, Lord, if you get me out of this situation, I'll, I'll never do that again. And we use that just to get out of trouble. This wasn't a, a bartering chip uh, for her. She wasn't making a bargain. Her life was already set on following after, after God. Her life was already full of worship. She wanted to pour that into a child who could be used by God. And so she knew that that battle didn't belong to her, but that battle belonged actually uh, to the Lord. And here's how Eli responds in verse 17. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate. Her emotional disposition is changing. That's affecting the way that she's physically acting. And her face was no longer sad. I don't know if she believed with certainty that God was going to answer her prayer the way that she wanted her to or not. I don't know if she believed that she was going to have children when she walked away from that. But what scripture leads us to believe here is that when she walked away, she walked away with peace. Maybe the scenario would change. Maybe the scenario would stay the same. But when she walked away after laying down that struggle at the place that was known as Shiloh, the place of peace, the place of refuge, she walked away with that peace. Peace in what, though? Peace that the God of heaven and earth 
would work all things out for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. This is what Paul said in in Romans chapter 8. She walked away with peace that the Lord had heard her and that he was going to do what was right on her behalf and that she was part not only of, of his plan for her life, but his plan for all of his people. And the Lord is using this to transition his people out of the judges, to move them into the monarchy that would eventually bring about Saul, who would eventually bring about King David, who would eventually bring about King Jesus. Hannah was instrumental, instrumental in bringing about the Savior that would come one day. She prayed that God would give her a son. And guess what happened? She had a son. She named him Samuel. His name meant heard by God. The Lord had heard her cry. And Samuel, he would grow up and he would be a prophet. He would grow up and be the last judge. He would grow up and again, he would anoint King Saul. He would anoint King David, a man who's after God's own heart. And he would eventually lead that monarchy into a change of heart, a shift in how God was working with his people. In a time when Israel was doing whatever they wanted to do, Samuel was born to be a man to help point people back to God. And Hannah had a part in that. And so this story, it sits here. It sits here for us this morning who are in the kind of the same thing now. We live in this transitional period of history, right? Where people are walking around, still doing whatever they want to do, what feels like what's right in their own eyes. A time when hearts are somewhat turning away from God. A tough, difficult time in our culture. And the story sits here as an example of a man in Elkanah who said, man, I am still going to be faithful to the Lord. And it sits here as an example of, of a mom in Hannah who said, I am going to be faithful to the Lord. No matter what's going on around me, I'm going to keep laying my struggle down at his feet. If he gives me a child, fantastic. If he doesn't give me a child, fantastic. But I am going to set my heart on worshiping him. And so she laid it down and she found peace. I, and I, I don't know like what struggle you might be in right now, what valley, wait, on what valley, what height you're in. But I know that the Lord meets us in those spaces, right? And so if, you, if you've got kids at home, they're just going crazy. That's a struggle to bring to the Lord to find refuge and peace. If you are waiting for the day that you're going to have kids and it's just been a struggle for you to get to that place, then this is a place where we bring our trouble our struggle and we lay it down at the feet and we find refuge and peace there that he is lord over the struggle that he is in charge of what's going on if you've got kids that have just gone off the rails and that relationship is broken you say man my heart is broken over this then we bring that and we lay it down to find refuge and peace because just like hannah ran to shiloh you know what jesus was known as jesus was also known as our peace Jesus was known as our Shiloh. Jesus was known as the one who, if something was broken, if it could be fixed, he was the one who could fix it. And so we bring it to him and we lay it down at his feet. And so if the struggle feels just so overwhelming for you this morning, I want to invite you to leave it at the feet of Jesus and to find refuge and to find peace there and remember that the battle belongs to him. Would you pray with me? Father, your word, it just speaks so clearly. Um, and it gives us comfort where we need comfort. And it gives us challenge where we need challenge. And in a text like this, boy, it can 
feel so overwhelming, but at the same time, it can bring so much joy because we remember that our circumstances aren't in charge. Our struggle isn't in charge. We hand that over to you and realize that you're in control, that you're in charge. What you close, you can open. What gets broken, you can fix. And so, Father, in the thing that we struggle with, whatever it is, may we find our peace in you. May we find our refuge in you. You sent your son to do just that. Jesus came to be our peace. Jesus came to give us comfort. Jesus came to be with us in the struggle so that we wouldn't carry it alone. And so, Father, would you let us find our peace there? And if I've got friends in the room who don't yet know Jesus as comforter, who don't yet know Jesus as the one who brings peace, who can be our refuge, I pray that today, Lord, that they would just find refuge in you, maybe for the first time. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Happy Mother's Day.